Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You are a holy God. We thank You that You pursued us, that You found us, that You adopted us, that we've been abandoned by the world and we have been abandoned by uh, our own standard of righteousness, Father, that You found us and You drew us near to Yourself. Father, we just ask that uh, this morning we had a chance to meditate on the holiness and purity of who You are and how You've impacted us. And we say thanks. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. You know, a lot of the words of those last two songs we sang are actually developed by Ezekiel. Ezekiel's going to use in the chapters we look at today, two of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. The metaphors of a, a vine, a burnt vine in particular, and the metaphor of a adopted child. And though those two look totally separate, they're connected because they're about connectedness and relationship, as Ezekiel describes it. I remember my father, when I was in college, I came home and he said, uh, hey, do you want to go on a camping trip with us? I said, oh, I'd love that. So my best friend and I got in the boat. I had my jet ski with the boat. We went down the Illinois River and we just were playing around, jet skiing, wakeboarding the whole bit. And it got a little bit late Enough that it was past dusk. I couldn't take my jet ski back to where we put the boats in. And he said, well, let's camp out here. He said, by the way, wear your, your clothes. I said, well, back in the car. He said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I can't go back. He says, well, I guess you're going to have to learn that you should have prepared better. Tough love. Now, my dad, on the other hand, in the boat had the tent, sleeping bag, clothes, food. He had it all prepared. So he's in the tent and he hands me a lawn chair that he got for me. And so I, I lay out the lawn chair, and I'm trying to make a fire to stay warm that evening while he's snickering to himself in the tent. And I, I, I went and began to gather firewood, and I gather all this firewood. And the problem with the wood at the side of a, a river is it's been so waterlogged and dried out, waterlogged and dried out. Even though I built this gigantic stack to keep me warm for the night and to dry me off, the minute I hit it with a match, it was like styrofoam. It was gone in about ten minutes. And I was shivering, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't want to have to go collect firewood again. This is supposed to last so much longer. And I kept hoping I'd fall asleep, and then I'd be like, oh, it's so cold, i got to try it again. I'd wander deeper and deeper into the darkness, deeper and deeper into the woods, gathering more wood. And pretty soon, I'd gone so deep into the woods, there was no wood left. And I started gathering vines. This is not great firewood, folks. I mean, we grew up burning wood. I'm literally dragging vines out of the you know, the jungle on the sides of the Illinois River and trying to burn those things. There's not much wood to them. They're about this thick at best. And I end up shivering all night long with this burnt, sort of ineffective styrofoam wood. And I learned a couple things in that experience. One, how to plan better. Two, that my father had a tough love side of him that uh, he felt was important for me to learn those lessons. Three, I learned that wood was not designed to be waterlogged, dried out, waterlogged and dried out to be burnt. And I also learned that vines were not designed to burn and be fuel. That same tough love that my father used that day is similar to the tough love God's going to use with Ezekiel today. And that burnt old vine that did not keep me warm is the same burnt vine that God is going to hold up and tell Israel is their destiny if they keep on the path they're on. He's going to tell us that the vines 
are not designed for fire. Vines are designed to produce fruit, right? That's what a vine's for. A vine is designed to produce fruit, not be fuel for the fire. And using these two metaphors, he wants us to know that you and I were not designed to to be burnt up. You and I were not designed to burn out. You and I were not designed to wear out. We weren't designed to be machines. We were designed for something connected, like branches to a vine, like vines to the root. And I think the hope he has for Israel is the hope he has for you and me that as we understand these two connected metaphors of the vine and the child, we would understand our purpose in a very practical way. And begins in chapter 15 with a metaphor of a burnt vine. And again, his emphasis here is we are the vine designed to produce fruit, not be fuel for the fire. Here's how he says it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man. How is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? If you were going to make a fire, how would the wood of a vine, is it better wood to burn than, say, the oak? Rhetoric answer, well, of course not. Vines were not designed to burn, to be fuel for the fire. How is it better than any other wood? Well, it's not better because it burns better. The vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest... All right, if it's not made for fire, then second question, is wood taken from the vine? Is that great wood for making objects? If you were going to build a chair or a couch or a piece of furniture, if you wanted to design something fashionable for your home, would you go find a vine and carve it out of a vine? Rhetoric answer, no, vines weren't designed to burn. They weren't better wood. They weren't designed to create something fashionable, like a chair. Well, how about this? Maybe they were designed to be functional. Can men make a peg from it, the vine, and hang their, their coat on it or hang their garment on it? Rhetoric answer, no. Why? Because the vine is twisted and turned. It's not good word for making something fashionable. It twists and it turns. It's not good word for making something functional. Nothing wrong with fashion. Nothing wrong with being functional. But those are not its primary purpose. The primary purpose of a vine is not fire, it's not fashion, and it's not function. It's designed to produce fruit. I was with a friend recently. He's been a follower of Jesus for 40 plus years. And he said, you know, I'm really discovering that as successful as I've been in my career... As successful as I've been in uh, church ministry, I realized I treated my body a lot like a to-do machine. I got a lot of done. I was very successful and very functional. But I feel like God is calling me to a higher purpose as a follower of Jesus. I'm not sure I've stayed connected to Jesus over these years the way he wanted me to. Because of that, I'm not sure I'm connected to myself the way I'm supposed to be. I'm not sure I'm connected to my wife and my kids the way God would have me. I've made my whole purpose, my whole identity about being functional, not about producing fruit. I think he's right. In one sense, I think some of the implications of of the societal mood we live in today is that we define our success by the things God rhetorically says we were not ultimately designed for, not our primary purpose. 
I mean, even Karl Marx is absolutely upside down. His view of life was compared to the biblical economics. The one thing Karl Marx got right is that he saw people being turned into cogs in a machine. And he began to speak against the fact that human beings should not be treated as just functional objects that are used to churn out product. But they should be treated as eternal. And I often wonder, as the result of the Industrial Revolution, how much that still impacts you or impacts me. Here's how it impacts me. I think, man, I really had a good day. If it was, how would you finish the sentence? I know how I finished the sentence. I really feel like I had a good day because I was so productive. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. I love being productive. I love checking off lists. I love getting stuff accomplished. But often I think the results of the Industrial Revolution is, is I define myself with the idol of being functional. How often do I get to the end of the day and say, man, what a great day. I really felt connected to God today. I can't think of the last time I heard that. Oh, it's such a great day. I really felt connected to my spouse. I really felt connected to my kids. I had a really great conversation where it was a great day today. I felt the fruit of His Spirit flowing through me in that argument. I felt His patience coming through me. Oh my goodness, I felt the peace of God even under pressure. It was a great day today. I felt the fruit of His Spirit flowing through me in the midst of a difficult circumstance. can't think of the last time I said that either. See, our questions define how we find our purpose. And God says, I want you to find your purpose how I designed you to. A vine is designed that the sap and the life-giving power of the root produces fruit in it. That's its purpose. Now, it can be functional, it can be fashionable, but it wasn't designed primarily for that. Which he goes on to say this. Instead, a vine that doesn't produce fruit, you're not going to use it for a peg, you're not going to use it for building a, a furniture, you're not going to... You're going to end up throwing it in the fire. Instead, it's thrown into the fire for fuel, something it wasn't designed for. And the fire devours both ends of it and its middle is burned. Is it even better now? Now that you threw it into the big fire and it burned from both ends and now in the middle, now you've got a burnt crispy vine. Is that useful? No, that's not useful either. He uses the word useful twice in this thing to say it wasn't designed for fire. When it was whole, no object could be made for it. How much less will it be useful when it's been burned and the fire has devoured it? And it's been burned. Therefore, says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel. I'm going to give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I've waited for hundreds of years. For you to want to be in connected relationship with me to produce fruit. I design you different from the trees of the other nations so that you would produce the fruit of my spirit and draw people to its fruit. But now I love you enough not to enable your idolatry, to enable your wickedness. I am now going to take that which I love. And with a tough fatherly love, I'm going to throw that vine into the fire. You won't be more functional burnt than you were unburnt. But I need you to go through this process that you can rediscover what you were designed for. He continues. And I will set my face against them. And they will go out from me from one fire. And you're going to think, oh my goodness, this was bad. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back in. It's going to be one fire and we'll jump into another fire. And it's going to devour you. Then you shall know 
what this whole thing's been about, what this whole experience is about, is I want you to know that I am the Lord. I want to be in connectivity to you. I want to be cooperating with you. I want to be doing life with you. I want to be producing the good stuff you need in you. I want that connectedness. And you've decided that something else is your Lord. Different gods, different idols, your fashion, your functionality. So I set my face against you. If you don't want to be connected to me, I'm going to show you what happens when you're not connected to me. Thus, I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness. And again, even in this vine metaphor, he jumps back to a marriage metaphor because this vine metaphor is about relationship, being connected to him. He says, when you choose to be connected to other vines for your resources, for your source of identity, for your source of life, you're choosing to be unfaithful to what you were designed for. I remember hearing the story of a guy named Wayne Hazinga. And he was the son of the man who started Waste Management and the son of the man who started Blockbuster. And because of a second generation wealth, he just had opportunities to do whatever he wanted. He pretty much took friends, flew them all to Paris for a weekend and came back. Drugs, alcohol, travel, he tried it all. And was enjoying his life, but even as enjoying his life and saying, maybe I could find my daddy in pleasure. And it was good, but it wasn't, well, something was missing and, and, and fame and something was missing and power and something was missing. Well, one day he got the opportunity to take his friends, a couple of them, and go and take a ride in a nuclear submarine because of the connection. They arrived at the nuclear submarine and they went down the hatch, closed that thing off, and he met the commander of the sub. And this man had this incredible combination of strength and tenderness, courage and self-control, patience and conviction. And as he watched these men follow him, listen to his commands, respect him, not just his position. He was used to people respecting position, but respecting him as a person. He pulled the commander aside during their, their journey on the submarine. He says, I got to ask you, what is your secret to life? You've got something I want. And the commander pulled out a New Testament and said, this is my leadership manual. For years, I thought position, I thought power, I thought titles would bring me success. I've learned about the life of Jesus and being connected to Jesus has made me the man I am. This is what you've been looking for. And Wayne says that he became a follower of Jesus underwater in a submarine that day because his whole life he realized he'd been unfaithful finding his identity in all kinds of good things but not the ultimate thing he was designed for and that is what god is saying here is even as a follower of jesus as a follower of god when you find your true source of identity from something besides him you become unfaithful in your walk which is why he moves transition he transitions here from the metaphor of a vine to that of a child. Second visual aid. Not a burnt vine, but an abandoned child. And he uses the word nativity. It's interesting. It's the only time in the Bible the word nativity is used. It's the second place in the Bible the word swaddling clothes is used. It's in Ezekiel. He says this visual aid of a nativity is that we are abandoned children. You and I are an abandoned child that has been adopted into God's family. Chapter 16, and again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, cause Jerusalem to know, know her abominations, know her unfaithfulness. 
say to her, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your birth and your nativity from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. What in the world does that mean? It doesn't make you think of Monty Python. Your mother was a father was a hamster and your mother smelled about the Elzebeth's. What in the world does it mean that your birth, your nativity, when you were born, it's of the land of Cana and it's from a mixed spiritual marriage of the Hittites and the Amorites? Well, it's helpful to understand that Satan has had a strategy for killing children all through history. Pharaoh kills off the two-year-olds and younger. Herod will kill them off when Jesus is born. Infanticide, exposure, taking children up to age two, leaving them out in the cold to be devoured by animals, to be devoured by the, the elements. This has been common practice. One of Satan's greatest strategies to come and kill and destroy. As that has rattled through history, we see that in the Greeks and the Romans. They had a caste system, and as you had children, the more children you had, your inheritance got divided up, and you went lower and lower in the, in the rank socioeconomically. And so you would literally take a child that was born, and the mother would bring that child to the father. And if the father turned his back on the child, because it was going to lower their rank socioeconomically, the mother and father would take that child and leave him at the city gates. So if you came into Ephesus, if you came to the cities of the New Testament, the first thing you would see at the city gates would be abandoned children left there to die. And it was the Christians who got so gripped with what I'm going to share with you today that they began the process of rescuing children through adoption, rescuing children from infanticide, rescuing children from, from exposure in India, in England, in China. This revolution of adoption Taking a child not born to your body, into your family, was a powerful theological truth rooted in what we're going to look at in this analogy today. And what happened here is he's saying the Amorites and the Hittites both served deities that required you when you had a child to throw your child into the fire as an act of worship. And you didn't feel bad about it. You were delighted that, that you got to give to your God your children. However, this particular couple, one is an Amorite and one is a Hittite, and they can't decide which God to give the child to. So they're going to destroy the child either way, but they can't decide, does your God get the, to the child or does our God get the child? So instead, they come to an agreement to abandon the child. And guys, I want you to understand, God says, that that's where you were when I found you. Abandoned and rejected. by the world, by your parents. And whatever way you felt rejection before, whether it was putting together a proposal and you knew you're at the top of the list and all of a sudden they chose somebody else and you felt the sting of rejection, whether it was the flipping over on the edge of the mattress at night because you felt rejected by a spouse, was being jilted, someone breaking up with you, or there's not getting that promotion that you felt you earned. We've all felt at least a glimmer or hint of abandonment and rejection in our life. And God said, I wanted to meet you in your rejection. I want to meet you in your abandonment. He says, when you were rejected, as for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut. You were not washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor swaddling, wrapped in swaddling clothes. 
No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you. No one had compassion on you. No, you were thrown out in an open field. You yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And God says, I went looking for you. I took a walk for you. And as I walked through the woods, I heard a voice. I heard a cry of a child, an abandoned child. And I found that behind the trees and behind the bushes in the darkness, I heard your cry. And I found you abandoned by your parents. Unloved, unwanted. They didn't even care enough to cut the umbilical cord cleanly or to wash you up. You were there lying in your own blood. And, and as I picked you up and I found you, I, I realized you were dying. You were, you were gasping for breath. And God says, I pulled you out of the woods and I pulled you out of the darkness. And I began to say, live, live. And I saw you in your own blood. Live. Come on, live. Don't stop breathing. Breathe, breathe. God says, live. I saw you. I say it again. You were there in your own blood. Live. Come on. Come on. Don't give up on me now. And God fought for you. And God worked CPR on you and God breathed into you and God tried to bring you back to life. And God, like a surgeon and God, like a nurse, he found you when you were unwanted and he just is working and working and he's pleading with you to breathe, to breathe, to come back to life. And he was there for you. And he says, when I passed by you and I saw you struggling, this small child struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. And then I watched you grow. It's back to his plant metaphor. I made you thrive like a plant in the field. And I came back, walked past, and I saw you grow. I saw you mature. I saw you become very, very beautiful. My little girl, my princess, my buddy, my man. And Israel almost always uses the metaphor of a woman that says, I saw, your, I saw your breasts grow as you matured. You became very, very beautiful. Your hair grew and, and you were formed. But still, you didn't even have enough sense to clothe yourself. You were still naked and bare. And yet I loved you. Though you had nothing to offer me, I loved you because I wanted to be in a relationship with you. That's why I pursued you. That's why I wanted you. Number seven and a half years ago, meeting at a restaurant with Jackie. Jackie had just cried her way out of an abortion clinic, was trying to decide whether or not she was going to keep this child, but she was a single mom and didn't know what to do. When my wife and I met with her, we said, if you will carry the baby to term, we would love to adopt him. We named this child together, Quinn Jackson, middle name Jackie's son, to remember the great sacrifice Jackie had made in giving us and placing Quinn in our life. And then on June 3rd, 2009, Quinn came into our home and just brought an incredible joy and life. A child that had almost been killed, a child who had been almost abandoned, was instead, of pla instead placed. Little would we know that two months later we'd find out he was blind, and six months, nine months later, we'd find out he had autism. We just knew God was calling us to adoption, to take a child that was not our own and to love him as if he was, to treasure him, to let God speak to us through him. And I, and I remember six months later how the process works. It's six months after a child's in your home when adoption occurs. And I remember our whole family gathered. Our whole family gathered to make a covenant 
to make a commitment. And that's what this word covenant means here. God says, I passed by you again and I looked upon you. Indeed, your time was a time of love. I bet you that baby didn't feel very loved. But God says, oh, but I loved you. The time we had and I watched you grow and I watched you develop was a time of love. A God would say to each one of us today, whatever rejection, whatever abandonment, whatever connectivity you don't feel like you had from your earthly father or mother, God says you are wanted and you are treasured and you are loved. I was desperate to keep you alive. I was desperate to watch you grow. I so wanted to adopt you into my family that I made a covenant with you. I swore an oath to you. I I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. And I entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine. God says, you are mine. You belong to me. I'm your dad. I'm your father. I'm your parent. Six months later, we walked into a courthouse down downtown Cincinnati. It was in December. So we walked into the courthouse. My wife and I were walking in together. We had Quinn in our arms. And I remember as we came into the, the, the transcendent grandeur of being in a courtroom. I'd not been in a courtroom uh, maybe ever. I just remember sort of the spookiness of it, the fear of it, the, the sense of uh, people's lives and destinies are changed here in this moment. And as the judge saw us, we were the only ones there that day. He looked at us. He said, oh, I recognize you. I looked at my wife. He didn't recognize me. Did he recognize you? You've been here before? You're going to tell me. I didn't recognize him. He says, guys, I'm your neighbor. Neighbor? Yeah, I live three doors down. He says, well, maybe you don't recognize me in my, in my judge clothing. He said, usually you guys come by my house for Halloween. And when you do, I'm usually wearing the clown nose and the clown feet. Back before clowns were a real terror. And all of a sudden, my kids are like, oh, you're the one that gives us extra candy. And all of a sudden, a a judge who was transcendent and fearful became a neighbor who was imminent. And this is how the Bible describes God. He is the transcendent judge and the imminent neighbor. And he says, I love cases like this. Of all the things I do in this courtroom, this is my favorite thing to do. He said, I love these adoption cases. We gathered together as a family and the gavel came down. And in that moment, something occurred. A legal transaction occurred that changed a last name Roginsky into the last name Hoven. He who was not a Hoven became a Hoven. He who was not an heir became an heir. There was a legal transaction that occurred in the same way in the adoption Visual aid that God uses here. He says, I want you. You, I've always been your creator, but now I want to be your father. And though God is everyone's creator, he's not everyone's father. And yet he longs for you and I to be in an adopted relationship with him and to understand the passion of a father who, in looking for you, found you in the, in the woods, breathed into you, gave you CPR and said, come on, come on, let's be in relationship together. And then adopts you into his family. And he goes on and describes, it wasn't just the adoption. He says, I washed you in water with my own hands. I thoroughly washed off all the blood. I anointed you with oil. 
I clothed you with embroidered cloth. I didn't just put anything on you. I made embroidered cloth for you. I wanted you to look your very best. I gave you sandals made of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. You are and you were my little princess. I put a jewel in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour and honey and oil, only the best for my little girl and my little boy. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. And God would say to you, whatever voices of rejection you heard in your past, whatever your Hittites and Amorite background did in abandoning you or rejecting you, God says, hear my words and make them more powerful than the voices of your past. Make this the song of your life. You are my prince. You are my warrior. When I see you, you are exceedingly respected. You are beautiful in my eyes. I am the father you always longed for. I am the father who wants to capture your heart. And notice what he's done. He's moved not just, I didn't just adopt you. That would have been enough. I didn't just save you. That would have been enough. I didn't just save you from dying in your own blood. That would have been enough. I adopted you and I made you an heir to the royal palace that I own. You are royalty and your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on it. And notice it's perfect, not through its own splendor, through God's splendor. We're back to that vine metaphor that I had bestowed upon it. The things in which being connected to me as your father, being connected to me as the vine, the things that began to come out of you were the beauty of my holiness, the beauty of my relationship, the beauty of my connectedness says to you. Now, if you listen, if you lean in, you can hear the words of the New Testament here. Can you hear them? In Romans chapter 8, Paul has a metaphor that he seemingly picks out of nowhere about living and dying, about adoption. And then he moves directly from adoption into royalty and heir. Where does he get this metaphor? But in Ezekiel chapter 16, when he says these words in Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, the idolatry, the unfaithfulness, the, the living to find your identity somewhere else, you will live for as many as are led by the spirit of God. These are sons of God adopted into his family. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we can cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're royal. We're heirs. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. 
Paul, in his lawyer-esque, theological way, describes this scene with these beautiful truths. But when you understand the word picture that God painted of this in Ezekiel, it's so much more meaningful. When you realize I was the abandoned child that God found and he loved and he adopted, he took into the family and then he made me not just his son and his daughter, but an heir and a joint heir to the king. How do you respond to a father like this? What is the natural bent when you get that this this could really be true, that I was designed to be in a vine relationship? I was designed to be in in an adopted relationship to the son. Well, all through history, it's transformed Christians who made saving children's lives and adopting children or providing for adoption a key priority in their life. But more than that, it's been the motivation for saying, I don't have to obey God. I'm not about a checklist. I want to please the father who did something for me I could never do for myself. It is the motivation of the gospel to love your father. It's a motivation to see your father breaks away the lies of shame and guilt from the past. It is the secret to freeing yourself from all those lies that got, got placed into you when you were younger. All, all the drivenness that comes from trying to prove that you weren't worthy of abandonment, that you weren't worthy of, of, of a father not saying, I'm proud of you or I love you. All that drive is that hunger for the real father who would find you. And adopt you and love you and, and brag on you to his friends. And that's what this father is. To which the reason I think Ezekiel constructs chapter 15 and 16, these two metaphors next to each other, is I think they have a theme. Vines, you and I, are designed to produce fruit from our heavenly father. Not to be fuel for the fire. God does not want anyone to be destroyed. But he won't force your vine to hook up to his roots. But more than that, we are designed to be children. And we as children are designed for relationship, not employment. And many of us want to get employed by God. God, what do you want me to do? Let me go do it. Check in. And certainly work can be an expression of worship. But God doesn't want employees. God wants children. He wants to do life with you. He wants to work alongside you. He wants to be connected with you in life. He wants friendship. He wants deep relationship. And if this is true, and if this is God's heart, then I think there's two questions we should ask ourselves as we go through life. As we ask ourselves our purpose at the end of each day, maybe for the next week, what if you ask yourself these two questions? Not just was I productive, What if I ask this question, did I feel the fruit of his spirit flowing through me today? And if not, how can I get closer to the father that I can feel his peace and his gentleness and his self-control? I want to be connected to my purpose today, God. Did I feel the fruit of your spirit flowing through me? And how about the second question? Am I enjoying my relationship with my father. A lot of us are religious, but I'm not sure that daily we're enjoying the relationship with our father that he wants. That's what God wants from us, for us to enjoy him. Last month, a few weeks ago, actually, Mr. Quinn and I found a a praying mantis. It's huge, isn't it? It's big enough he doesn't eat it because he eats bugs. We, for 20 minutes, chased this praying mantis around the backyard. We, we chased it over the deck. We chased it onto the table. We chased it up the wall. Quinn was on my neck trying to look at it because he likes to get about this close. 
we had a great time enjoying our relationship. But it was a very challenging, it's been a very challenging couple of weeks. Uh, we've switched schools and all kinds of stuff, trying to get him in the right place. And Beth and I were just exhausted, just worn out from the complexities that aren't worth complaining about, but they just make daily life uh, challenging. And so at the end of one of these days, so Beth had handed me Mr. Quinn, and I was zipping up his, his zip-up from the back pajamas so he can't take them off. And I'm just sort of exhausted. But it's time to go to bed. And I'm just worn out from the sacrifice and worn out from the challenges and the complexity. And, and he turns around and looks at me in a way that only Mr. Quinn can. And, and he leans in and gets about an inch from my nose, which he loves to do. He tilts his head to the right with this puppy dog look that he has. And he reaches over and kisses me on the cheek. Love you. And in that moment, that transcendent moment, all the sacrifice sort of dripped away, and I realized how much he enjoys and loves his father. And I realized that all the things he can't control, all the things that are beyond him, inside is this little boy who just loves his dad. And I think that must be how God feels toward us, of all the things we can't control, of all the things that make us act out in ways that maybe we shouldn't and, 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 and know we shouldn't. God just longs for us in the midst of all the commotion, all the sacrifice he's done for us, just to look at our Father and get close and say, I love you, Dad. I love you. You're a good, good Father. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and as I do that, I just want to give you a prayer. And maybe for you, it's just a reminder that you haven't been enjoying your relationship with your Father. So let's pray together. Maybe you just want to say these words. God, remind me that my relationship with you is the highest priority. I love you, Dad. I invite you to come into my life and take rule over my heart. Thank you for finding me. Thank you for adopting me. Thank you for loving me. And I ask you to produce your fruit through me as I enjoy my relationship with you as my Father. Amen.